Hey everyone, you're in good traffic. Thanks for coming back for another week of the show, another episode of the show. I'm joined this week by a guest that I am very excited to talk to about a topic that I think is pertinent and also super catalyzing for a lot of these urbanism and urban design conversations that we've had on this show and that are, are happening in ancillary circles around the country, we hope, at this point. I'm joined today by Mr. Money Mustache, um, kind of one of the main voices of this movement of frugality and kind of just financial smarts and independence in the United States over the last, you know, decade plus here. Um, so first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for taking some time to talk about urbanism, which hopefully is a little bit of a mix up from some of the things that you are uh, normally discussing on these shows that you that you frequent. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks, Brad. And uh, it's great that we're neighbors. So I could just walk over here and join your podcast. But secondly, that is one of my big passions. Like I've written about this a couple times. I try not to do it too much because I know people are coming to my website to hear about how to get richer. But secretly, the stuff I care about most is more like this kind of thing, like how to make the United States and other rich countries into more people-friendly, yeah, livable, more fun places to live that also just happen to consume less energy and sure. are more sustainable. So it's basically a win-win but on the living side rather than just on the dollars side. Absolutely. And I say it some, somewhat jokingly, I actually personally think that our conversations are extremely connected to each other. Um, yeah. And I think that the personal finance angle, to, for, for lack of a better term, to the um, push and the, the pitch to people to go car light or car free or to just start to look for alternate modes of transportation for different ways to offset their cost of living. I think that is the strongest argument for urbanism, for people-centered urban design. And I, I know the environmental arguments get a lot of the headway, you know, EVs and all these things. We, we hear about them in the media a lot. And I not that I don't think those are important, but I think the the argument that you have made, that kind of the the angle that you've taken to this conversation is one that I think people of any political orientation, people of any background can get behind, which is this actually saves you money. Living in these certain ways saves you money. So with that in mind, I was telling you earlier um, that I initially learned about you in 2017 through a Tim Ferriss podcast. Um, which I remember you very, I think early on in that conversation said something along the lines of talked about how your grocery shopping routine was very much revolving around biking to um, the grocery store in, in Colorado where you, where you live at. Um, and I remember at the time, because I wasn't thinking of things through an urbanism mindset, that that didn't really ring a bell. Um, but now in, in hindsight, I look back and go, oh, you made we're making this intentional decision around transportation around mobility from a finance lens way before cul-de-sac way before all these concepts so i'd love to start off just could you give a little background on your for lack of better terms origin story into urbanism and being interested in urban planning and ultimately applying it to your life as someone who prioritizes frugality um, above all else yeah that's a funny question uh I don't think I've ever had that exact question before, but I like it. So I think it what boils down to, I always thought the idea of wasting your time, um, just never really wanted to do that. So as I became a young adult and I moved out of my small town where I grew up and I started getting these jobs, like adult jobs as an engineering intern, yeah. I was like, well, of course I should get a, a place to live as close as possible to work. 
and I don't want to have to drive there because driving is expensive mm-hmm. and also driving is, you know, slow and frustrating and subject to the whims of other drivers and traffic jams and stuff. So even my very first job, I always picked a place to live where I could bike to work. And then I just continued that. Mm-hmm. And I remember later on in that same early part of my career, I started, you know, gathering friends and we would rent these big luxury houses and carve them up into bedrooms mm-hmm. so we could all live like in a party palace, but still have cheap rent. Yeah. But then... I was having arguments with them because the guys I was with were like, let's get a place right next to downtown because then we could all go out to bars and, you know, mm. and like walk home and have this party lifestyle. But th- the place where we all worked was the high tech company. And I was like 15 or 20 miles away from the downtown in this big city. It was Ottawa, Canada. And I was like, no, we got to live next to work because we go to work every day and we only go out to the bars on the weekends. So that's like five times more often. Yeah. So if you have to do a commute, you should do it like less often. So I remember having this battle and we ended up settling for a place in the middle initially. And then every time we moved to a new house, we would have the battle again and I would find us a new house, just a bit closer to work, a bit closer mm. to work. And then, uh, yeah, it felt like a win. And I still think it was great because we would all end up not having to drive much. And we carpooled and we biked and saved a ton of money. And of course, going out is something that gets happens less as you grow up anyway. Like you don't go out drinking as your entertainment. Sure. By the time you get to be a real adult, that's like, <laughs> that's only like in your college and shortly after your years. Yeah. Interesting. So when did you start applying then? Cause obviously that feels like a very intentional choice. You were thinking of it in a very logical way. If we go to work more than we go anywhere else. So it makes sense to live closer to there than any other, uh, you know, location or, or kind of modality that you, choose for fun or whatever it may be. But when did you really start applying kind of the financial lens to that? Was that from day one? Was it, oh, this is going to save us a lot of money? Or was it as you started to do it, you started to realize we're saving a lot of money by not, you know, taking certain mode of transportation or owning a car, um, doing things like that. I'd say it was right from the beginning Mm because I knew how much it costs to drive a car. And the younger you are, like the less money you have, the more that's a big deal, right? Like even the price of a tank of gas uh, it's a big deal when you're in high school right. and then you get to be like the next level of income and then gasoline's not such a big deal, but the cost of the car is still a big deal. And then the problem is most people don't realize that. And then the higher income you get, you kind of just like it falls into the noise of your spending because you're spending so much on everything else. Sure. But even on a pretty high income family, the car is a big thing. Like I remember reading recently, like the average American family spends something like $9,000 a year per driver for their car expenses, just to drive around. Probably almost all of it is unnecessary if they were thinking about it differently. And so I was in keen, I was always keen, even in my early twenties to keep that number as close to zero, even though I liked cars, I had like a nice car, a nice motorcycle, but I wanted to make sure I only used them when I really was enjoying it. So Mm. I'd use them for like, you know, date night or camping trips, but I didn't want to just waste my nice car driving back and forth to work. Interesting. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think it speaks to the numbness that we all seem to have to autocentricity, right? We all just kind of don't even think twice about what we're doing when we go to, you know, drive a multi-ton block of metal to get a, like, couple of ounce grocery, yeah. run, you know, or like, oh, I need some bread or cheese. I'm going to go drive my Suburban to pick that up. And we don't understand how incongruent that equation is how little sense that actually makes from a logic perspective of like you line that up it's wild it's so ridiculous i mean people really need to try pushing their car or truck around the block (laughs) just once and then you understand how much energy you're wasting when that and that when you Mm. drive the vehicle because it's like 
you're going to get super tired even pushing that thing like three houses down the street. And then you realize, oh, yeah, okay, that's why it's so expensive because this is a giant machine. And it's great if you're really using it. Like yeah. If you got five passengers and all of your stuff and you're rocketing across the mountains, that's a great reason for cars to exist. But just only use them for those good things. And then you can use your bike for the little things like going over to the grocery store to grab a few pounds or a few tens of pounds of groceries. That'll just, that fits right in your back. Yeah. I mean, and we both have done a lot of grocery trips that way. And I think a lot of people have just never seen it. You know, you grew up in the suburbs, you don't see people biking to the grocery store. You don't experience how that's even a possibility. So I think from a visibility standpoint, the more, I mean, there's been, I've seen TikToks recently of people just freaking out of this person's carrying all those bags on, on their bike, strapping things to stuff. And Oh, you mean the guy with the scooter where you've he's seen that one. And he puts like 500 shopping bags. That's so stupid. Yeah. Because I feel like it's reinforcing the, the non, like the misconception that scooters and bikes aren't good for groceries. Mm. And all that guy really needed was a backpack yeah, or like a couple saddlebags or whatever. And then you wouldn't have had all this ridiculous trouble because plastic shopping bags are stupid. And of course you can't, ride a vehicle with two wheels sure uh so anyway yeah that that video made me mad no and yeah that's that's an interesting take on that i i think for me that always those sorts of videos always make me think of proximity to grocery stores and brings it back to zoning of like if we had shops closer to home we wouldn't have to get that as many bags as that guy had on his bike to take because he'd be able to go every day you know and just get a little bit and i always then bring that back to we have smaller kitchens then because we wouldn't have to store as much food so then our square footage goes down cost of living goes down like we can fit more units house more people so the grocery store thing is a weirdly like very nuanced and also very uh, consequential thing. I think in urban planning that it doesn't weirdly does not get talked about enough. The way we have decided grocery stores work in this country, I think has outlaid a lot of the, you know, other things that have come about it in the built come about the built environment just because of how we're forced to live because of how we, we have to buy our food. Um, Interesting. That's something I never thought of, but, but yeah, I could be down with the local market. Yeah. Walk to more frequently. Yeah. Cause you think about when you go to, you know, a European city or even places like New York and people have smaller kitchens, but they also have a much greater proximity to fresher food. That's the other thing when it's not in a store that people go to once a week, in theory, less preservatives can be used because that, you know, people are frequenting more, the shelves are getting turned over more. Um, and then you can have less storage in your, your home. Like the cabinets are behind the camera. No one can see that on the podcast, but half of those are empty, you know? And even if they were full, it would kind of beg the question of if I can fill those up with food that I'm not going to eat for a month and a half, is that really what I want to be putting in my body? I don't know, you know? Yeah. So I think that all comes back to the urban planning conversation, weirdly. Um, And I think that that's something that, you know, that, that video makes me think of. And also a lot of what uh, you talk about kind of makes me think of just in terms of how we're wasting or using resources in space and in this case kitchen cabinets but also just how necessary are certain purchases I, I'm curious you've obviously had a lot of success with your message around personal finance why I know this might sound like a basic question but I think there's a kind of a psychological answer that plays into the larger urban planning bit which is why do you think that people are so receptive to the message of frugality? Why is that something that so many people, A, are just open to, but maybe also they just haven't heard before? Uh, Well, I would say they're not open to mm, it in general because most people think that frugality means deprivation and they think it's hard 
And there's like a lot of negativity, partly driven by advertising in the United States, mm. where spending more is good, spending less is automatically bad. In fact, some people, even in the government uh, documents on the census, they use the term quality of life uh, as equivalent to level of spending, mm. which is completely like two different things. So I always try to break those things mm. separately. And I like to use the word choice, like your chosen level of spending to remind people like, no, it's not the quality of your life. And it's also, there's no such thing as living expenses. There's spending choices. Mm. And then once you empower people with those words, then you can really um, break down frugality and make it not sound like a bad thing. Yeah. And it's actually just a skill. Um, what you're trying to do is have the most satisfaction and the most like powerful, great, free life, um, hopefully at a reasonable cost, you know, mm. like minimize the amount of wasted money For so sure. that any money you spend is going to something they actually care about. Yeah. So that's what I focus on. And I also focus on the idea of early retirement, which is, you know, much more powerful and desirable thing than just like being stingy because yeah. nobody wants to be stingy. Nobody should be uh, cheap, which you I define as, you know, being frugal in a way that affects other people negatively. Mm. You know, you don't want to do that. That's like, there's so much money in the United States. You generally don't have to do that, thankfully. But yeah, I'm just trying to get people to be thoughtful about their spending and waste less money. That leaves more money for things you care about, including purchasing your own freedom, which comes from owning stuff, you mm. know, like owning assets, owning your house, which allows you to have more income and less expenses and less interest cost from debt. So that's what I'm all about. It's not, I really don't talk about the F word too much because people are, it scares people off really. Interesting. Yeah, that, that that's so true. The perception of it, I think is one thing. And, you know, you mentioned the cost of car ownership or usership even in a household being, you know, you said 9,000. I, I hear estimates up to 20, depending on, you know, what kind of car you have, how much you drive, all that's what, you know, your maintenance costs, those things. But we look at something like that being a stasis in the United States, right? The cost of owning a car. Then you look at things like, you know, what we have 61%, I think, of people that are in credit card debt averaging over $5,000. We look at, um, you know, Harvard, one, their, their Center for Housing just put out um, a new study that over half of renters in the United States now are, are spending over 30% of income on housing, which means they're, you know, rent burdened or rent strained. Um, all of these things combining into one moment, right, in the United States right now. And it feels like your message is more relevant than ever for reasons that are very tied to cost of living and built environment. When you think about how you're approaching your conversation, do you see that angle to things, that transportation housing costs to be a big part of what you think you might talk about in the, in the coming years or what maybe you even are focusing on right now, or even just internally thinking about as well. I'm very curious how that sort of momentum that is very clear as it pertains to cost influences how you kind of approach your conversation and your audience. I think of transportation and housing as pretty separate things. So transportation, there's no reason that should cost you much of anything. Mm. You know, you can design your life so that you walk and bike almost everywhere. And then if you need a car, you can have it you know, a cheap one that you don't use very much and you get a reliable one, you don't get a truck. And then, you know, that's going to be just a couple thousand dollars a year. Um, so that's transportation should be low housing. I don't really care if people spend more on housing because, um, if you're having a family or even if you're just like a 
a single or a couple and you like to host and have like a comfortable living space, it might be quite reasonable to spend more mm. on that. And I've always prioritized housing. Like I've always had nice houses and I like to have a lot of space. So that's not, I don't have like 5,000 square foot houses mm. or anything like that. But yeah. I, for me, quality is important. And it's okay to spend more on that because it's something I spend a lot of time at home. So it's, it's number one for me. And then I like to minimize the amount of upkeep that my house requires. Mm. So I like, I like to build houses, for example. So I like make them really dependable and low maintenance. And I like them to be self-heating and self-cooling with like a lot of nice passive features, you know, with the windows in the right place and the ventilation and everything. So it hardly ever needs heat or air conditioning. So like, that's my thing. And I don't try to get people to stink skimp on their housing Mm. unless they don't care about housing, in which case absolutely get the smallest little studio or get a bunch of roommates if you want to. But that part of it is not really, you know, what I try to minimize. Mm. And then the other category of like your miscellaneous spending, um, that can be stripped back down Mm. if you want to like definitely strip out waste and food. You should have, you should spend enough to get high quality food but a lot of people spend more and get low quality food, you know, just mm. by going out to low quality restaurants all sure. the time. And so that's an easy thing to improve as well. And that cuts a huge part of it. Like at the middle class level, you can cut, you know, a thousand plus dollars off per month yeah. just by optimizing your food. Cause a lot of people just go out to restaurants and order like $15 glasses of wine every day without even thinking about it. It gets hard not to, you know, all these good plays. But I think that's that's an interesting thing too that I, I wanted to ask you about, which is when it as it pertains to the built environment and to building human scale neighborhoods, right? We talk about mixed use a lot. That's what we have here at Cul de Sac. That's what a lot of the most successful neighborhoods in the world and in the United States are. They definitely fit into that mixed use yeah. categorization. A lot of the message around being smart with our money often revolves not going out as much to eat or to, you know, do things outside of the home. It's much better to make food at home. Typically, I mean, when I think about my personal budget, the weeks that I eat at home more, I'm saving, you know, upwards of a hundred some dollars on, you know, just basic food and stuff. It's not even close. Um, But that message, how do you think that plays with the shop local, um, you know, patronize your local vendors and retailers sort of bit too, because Oftentimes those smaller shops have higher, uh, this is kind of a message that I hear a lot as well. Those small stores that you are advocating for being closer to home, they cost more money. The goods there are more, you know, they have smaller supply, their supply chain's not as streamlined. So for all those reasons, goods cost more. Um, How do you balance saving money and being financially smart with your week-to-week, day-to-day purchases with also supporting the neighborhood and community and the mixed-use nature of that? Because that feels like there could be, for some people, some friction in terms of those decisions that they have to make. Yeah. Well, I think if you think about a a chunk, a neighborhood as a block of units that can be either housing or commercial or restaurants, uh, the amount of money that people want to spend on their going out activities and, you know, choose to and and can afford to spend, Mm -hmm. that's going to determine the balance. So, like, if a lot of people are frugal, that's totally fine. You're just going to have a lot of housing and you're going to have less restaurants in that block of neighborhoods. And that's actually not necessarily a bad thing because a small number of restaurants can still do well. You know, if people are going out to dinner once a week, that's going to serve a certain number of restaurants. If it's like New York and people go out to dinner five nights a week, then you'll need five times as many restaurants, which just shifts the balance, but it can still be a great neighborhood. The fundamental thing for me, I don't mind if there's a lot of housing and if there's not a lot of restaurants, all I really care about is that there's not a lot of cars. You Mm. know, there shouldn't be a huge 
street and parking lot ripping through the neighborhood because that makes that's no good for the humans who want to play outside with their kids. Absolutely. And then what there should be is great parks and green spaces and walking trails like all over the place. And whether the balance is heavily commercial or heavily residential, either way, everybody should be willing to spend their money. And, and in this case, it would probably be in the form of like having some taxes, hmm. which we do, right? We have property taxes and that's why our city governments can afford to have parks and walking trails. So we should keep that and make sure we still have those things. And the good news is that Right now, our tax money also subsidizes this crappy stuff, which is like parking lots and roads, yeah. which are more expensive than parks. You mm-hmm. know, it's like a million dollars per lane mile to make a basic road. Yeah. And you can make a hell of a park for a million dollars. Oh, yeah. And a lot more people enjoy it than just like one lane of, of asphalt. Absolutely. So anyway, I feel like we can have way better places all around our houses uh, while spending like the same amount we spend now or less or whatever, mm. whatever's needed. And it'll still be, a, you know, a vibrant neighborhood. Totally, totally. And you bring up something interesting there, which I, I also was curious to get your thoughts on. You obviously talk about finance a lot as it pertains to the individual and their habits and how they can kind of build their life and customize their life in a way that fits them. When you kind of scale some of your philosophies to a city level, do you does it stay in the same vein of, you know, like, if we just spit, because what I love about your work, and this is, again, something that I think ties in perfectly to this conversation is we have so many people right now talking about how to get rich quick, make more money, and it seems to all be about the incoming money. Yours is mostly about outgoing. You're talking about spending more than anything, which I love because I think that's what the whole car cost thing comes down to, right? It's mm-hmm. no matter what income you're at, you will have more money if you don't drive, if you don't own a car. That is just math straight in front of you. But when it comes to a city level, how does your kind of thinking on spending go? Do you still stick with kind of that more stripped down version of, hey, let's try to be lean and make things happen more organically? Or do you think that on a wider scale like that, that with the economy of scale there, that it actually is better for for kind of endowment from the city into things versus just empowerment of people like that that's an interesting distinction i think i see what you're thinking so you're talking about like should the government try to be frugal with its money just like i'm proposing for the people to be frugal with their money um and i would say i mean a little bit less so but at the same time if you think about an individual person if if i'm telling them to spend less money going out to dinner or putting gas in their car what are they doing with the money they save well, they're investing it, right? They're, mm. In this case, they're buying sh- portions of companies or real estate that's like a productive asset. I would say that cities probably have a lot of fat in their budget. Mm. Like in my town, there's like the guys, the city workers are always driving around in these huge V8 engine pickup trucks that are empty. You know, like they should have a fleet of old Priuses to drive around when they, yeah. and then use the pickup trucks when you actually have to tow something or sure. carry something big. And sure. why pickup trucks? Why can't it be minivans, which mm. hold more than a pickup truck, but use less gas? Right. So cities are full of, you know, because especially because they're not even spending their own money, they're spending like the budget. I feel like they're super inefficient and they could probably cut down their spend, their spending by like about half without even compromising any services because half of it is just wasted. And then you take that half and then, you know, start thinking about investments rather than spending. Like, you know, anytime you put money into a park or a walkway or a bike trail that people use, that's generating wealth in the city because like the people get out of the house and they're healthier and they're going to meet each other and they're going to start more businesses. Whereas if you're just spending money on something that people never enjoy, like gasoline to be burned in the work trucks or like maybe an office that nobody uses, that's not an investment Hmm. because it's not, you know, 
resulting in the citizens having better lives. So just get better with that. I mean, we shouldn't try to cut our taxes down to zero and have no government because I feel like that's just going to lead to no good public spaces. Mm. And, and public spaces are really, really high leverage. You know, like $1 spent by a city can create tens or hundreds of dollars of public of wealth in the private sector just because there's these nice things that people enjoy being near. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And no, that makes me think about a lot. I think that there's, there's so much to be said for um, this balance between impact, giving people space, I guess is how I'd phrase it to create things for themselves. And we've talked about, about this a little bit offline as well of this idea of leaving spaces to be customized and leaving room for people to take risks and not having everything be so structured in our built environments, which is hard because the built environment inherently is a structured thing, right? We're talking about really harsh and hard surfaces like asphalt or concrete and things that aren't very malleable <laughs> over time. But you, you, you know, you've said things along the lines of using that as a canvas and allowing for residents of people of these neighborhoods to really take up and be the ones who drive a lot of the overtime change, which I think is totally in line with like, what Jane Jacobs and others have said over time, which is that we can't artificially create longevity in neighborhoods. That has to happen organically through the residents. And so, yeah, I think that I was just very curious about your thoughts on kind of the government's role in that, um, just because I think that's a very split thing. But I think it also speaks to right now we've seen an interesting thing happened where there's a lot of progress in like blue cities that are in red states because the balance seems to work well when there's low building regulations at a state level and, you know, permitting regulations. But then there is kind of this more progressive, for lack of better terms, mindset around building places that center people and that provide things for them um, other than just driveways and, and roads to get to and from things. So very, yeah. very interesting there. Yeah, that would be good with a slideshow, that little... <laughs> monologue you just gave it would be nice to people could have real examples of you know some spaces yeah. that cities have done where that happened i mean i think tempe's actually a, interestingly a good example of, of that here right arizona pretty red place um i know ryan and i have talked in previous years about ryan johnson called sec founder that was on last week we've talked before about how doing what they did and ryan said this to a million people not just me but you know, what they did here in Tempe with cul-de-sac, this first project where we're sitting right now would have taken them, you know, 15 years, 10 years more in California to do the same thing. Oh, I right? see. Yeah. Cause they had a bunch of rules. They had to change. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because on the surface, cul-de-sac feels like a very California idea. It feels like it would do well in populations of people there, but it actually doesn't maybe because of certain other things that come into play. So I just think there's a lot of you know, to your point, interesting examples and interesting um, things that, that we could put together to, to show some people because I think that that does tend to happen. And I think it speaks to the value of balance and thinking and also balance and how we look at money in the state and city level. So much to be studied there. I'm not claiming to have any conclusive evidence from that, but I think it is at least something that, you know, makes you perk, perk your ears up and want to hear a little bit more about and learn more from. So um, I do want to talk about, you mentioned briefly your kind of pastime now that you spend some time on, which is being a craftsman and building homes and structures and really getting your hands um, dirty with those sorts of things and actually being a part of building things physically. Uh, and you, you kind of beat me to my question, which I was going to ask about passive housing because I'm fascinated by that. I It's a goal of mine some days to build something that, I mean, in here i haven't turned the air or heat on since i moved in i turned it off the moment i walked yeah, in the door i have turned I it on the same thing it's yeah 
and I and yes, we live in Arizona and it's winter time. Understand that that's a you know certain instance that not everyone has access to, but I've always been fascinated by the way that one can create a structure that we've always, again, foregone concluded that it has to be run by heater, you know, cooling, all that, but that it maybe doesn't have to be, and we can utilize the sun, we can utilize other things to create a structure that does all that on its own. Have you, so you've done some projects that were totally passive then you've, you've worked on some, some, Uh, I wasn't super hardcore about it, like where I refused to put in a furnace. Sure, sure. Uh, in Colorado, there's more heating than cooling okay, over the yeah. course of the year, but I just try to do the best that I can um, without getting ridiculous on the design. Yeah. Because if you want to be really purist, you have to go, you have to make the house extremely heavy. For example, you have to have mm-hmm. lots and lots of like two foot thick concrete walls to store the heat, and you know perhaps even active shutters to like sure. let in the sun only at the right times. And that gets actually more expensive than just having the middle ground where you have like I always just put lots of big south-facing windows which gather a lot of heat in the winter and then in the summer the sun is up higher overhead so hardly any sun comes in those same windows Mm. and then you can cut the rest off with an overhang that's one of the classic principles of a passive house in a cooler climate and stuff like some heavy things inside like concrete floor rock walls those work great and then i'll just use an efficient furnace and air conditioner as little as possible and in that case the place you know the last house i built from scratch was a few years ago and I put a wood burning fireplace in it as well okay. just because I really love chopping and burning wood and it's in an area where, where wood burning is okay mm. and I have a super clean burning wood stove too that like reburns all its own smoke so okay. by the time it comes up the chimney and the roof you can hardly even smell the smoke and you don't see oh. any smoke you know vapor huh. so it's kind of just like a modern version of a, a wood stove and you can heat the entire house with just like a few logs so all that stuff is just I really enjoy it mm. and I'm kind of overdue to to build a new house from oh, scratch because that's exciting. you know it's it's just so fun to do that and then to live in the space you created and the house i'm in now is like something that already existed i've mm-hmm. changed it a lot but okay. I, I totally didn't build it myself so i think i'm feeling the itch getting the to itch do it again yeah that's awesome no that, that's super cool I, i'm curious do you think that those ideas of like that that sort of hybrid passive housing we'll call it could scale like at a at a neighborhood level or a city level oh yeah I mean, if some if anybody cares at all, like the builder or the buyer, and which would make the builder care, um, you can make any house more efficient, especially at the design stage. It's just that people generally don't care. Hmm. And it's the same reason fuel efficiency for cars is so low in the United States is nobody really cares about fuel efficiency. Like if they did, pickup trucks would not exist. You yeah. know, like they're so, it's so stupid. These things get like 15 miles a gallon. And you can have a great car that gets 50 or 60 miles a gallon and still carries five people. Uh, but mm-hmm. people buy the trucks just because they're like, eh, I like trucks. I saw it on the Super Bowl once, you know, and like, then that's the end of the thought process. And then they use it to drive to work, like empty. So in a country or, you know, a society where nobody cares about stuff like this, it remains a niche thing. And uh, that's why Mr. Money Mustache has to write articles about it because I want more people to care about it. So through my writing, I'm trying to get more people excited about these ideas. And sure, it saves you money, but it also saves everybody else some hassle too because you're destroying the earth less as well. Yeah, for sure. What has the response been like as you start to talk about those sorts of pieces in your work from from your audience? Like when you do talk about things like downsizing cars and things of that nature, what are the sorts of conversations that arise um, as a result of those sorts of things, people's eyes being open to that? And I think they like it as long as you frame it in a, benefit for them way like nobody wants to be shamed by like 
you know, the, the left wing eco nannies. Sure. So I try to focus on like freedom. Yeah. American, like you'll be rich and strong and everybody yes. will like you more and you'll have yes. more power. Totally. If you do this stuff. And, uh, you know, that is really how it works. I'm not just making the stuff up. Like it really right. is a more powerful lifestyle, but that's just what I focus on because, you know, I realize, you know, I, I am a marketing person at heart, just mm. like naturally. Yeah. So I, I understand that you have to frame things the right way if you want people to like the ideas. Totally. I love that you just said the whole freedom thing too, because I'm large, and this isn't something I explicitly have stated a ton, but a large part of my aim with this project is to make this not a one-sided political thing and like to not make it always seem like the, you know, rah-rah environmentalist advocates. Not that, you know, again, there's not a role there to be played, but I also think that tying this in and again this is why i love your approach to the financial side of this is that there is such a freedom and financial side to this argument to downsize car ownership to get away from that as an individual and as a country mm -hmm. and i think that sometimes folks in our sphere are afraid to talk about those things because it feels like a right-leaning conversation point but i think it's exactly in line with everything that you know the urbanist movement and urban design enthusiasts are are really looking at that's it's it, it, at the core what they're saying so i i totally love that you just brought that up i think it's a huge part of <laughs> a huge part of this that we need to keep talking about which is hey at the end of the day people care about saving money right like they just do and you do when you do these yeah. things in a certain way you save money yeah or even better way to phrase it is having money yes you know saving money sounds a little bit like a compromise, like, ooh, mm. I don't want to have to save. But people mm. just like being rich. And the only way to be rich is to spend less money than you earn. That's just the math like that. behind it. So, um, yeah, we'll, we say saving quietly, but we say having money loudly because we want to have, you know, everybody wants to have a lot and be free because of it. No, that's super interesting. I love that point. That I'm going to start using that for sure. One other thing that I remembered from that Tim Ferriss episode that we mentioned earlier was you, you told a story about um, your son when he was younger and how you would incentivize him to ride his bike. By, oh, yeah, that was a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, by paying him to... This, this, was, this was one of the main things that stuck with me from that because... Um, well, for those that are wondering, you you used to incentivize by you had an odometer on your your son's bike, and mm -hmm. based on how many miles he'd ride, you would pay him. I think it was ten cents or something like yeah. that. And I love that stuck with me because my girlfriend and I talk a lot about you know we intend to do a one car household for forever, and um, whenever kids come into the equation, how we can as they near their teenage years try to incentivize them to not want to get their car the day they turn 16, like all their friends will be doing. And it's like, it feels like a lost cause times. And then I heard your, I mean, I remembered your idea and I was like, this might be the key. This might be Maybe, the way. <laughs> but at the same time, I feel like there's a behavioral science principle where if you pay somebody to do something that they like already, then they don't like it as much. Uh, so you got to watch out not to tread into that, you know, in the way you phrase it with your kid. I feel like my son was never really all that incentivized be, by the 10 cents per mile anyway. Mm. He just wanted to bike with his mom and dad. Yeah. So, but, you know, I wanted to have an excuse to give him some spending money so he could learn to manage money too. Oh. So that was just like my way of having his allowance um, get created, Yes. Yeah. A different version of allowance. Oh. I still think it's a good idea though. And for some kids, like for me, I was very positively incentivized by money ever since I knew what money was. So it totally would have worked for me and it would have not made me dislike biking more. So. Hmm. I, I still think it's a fine thing to try yeah. for kids. 
Yeah, is there anything else like that that you think are really applicable pieces of advice that people listening to this could apply? Maybe that connect to, to the interest of, you know, downsizing on cars, all the things we've talked about. But from your standpoint, from the sorts of work that you do, is there anything you would recommend like in a one month or six month strategy for folks to start deploying and implementing in their lives? And how to become less car dependent? Yes, but so, also to save, to have money, not yeah. save money. Look, well, I'm, I'm changing my mind right. already. So the first thing is to remember is most people think of their car as something that costs money per month. That's not correct. It costs money per mile. So when you drive your car, every time you put a mile on it, that's sucking, you know, between 50 cents and a dollar of your wealth away. When your car is parked, for the most part, it's not burning money nearly as quickly. Like it's sure it's depreciating and stuff, but most of the depreciation comes from miles, you know, where you, you know, you burn it up. The engine gets worn out and the tires and everything else and the maintenance and, and gasoline too. Yeah. But gasoline is the smallest of your costs. Most mm -hmm. people think gas is the only cost of the car. So the main goal is to not throw as many of your dollar bills into the shredder. I like to pretend if you have a car, every time you start it up, you have to throw like a $10 bill into the slot in the dashboard and it goes, and it just shreds it and you never see it again. And then every time you go another mile, you have to put another dollar into the shredder. Yeah. That's a good way to visualize the car. Hmm operating and then if that really happened people would hardly ever drive they're like oh shit man i don't want to i don't want to burn up all these valuable dollars that i just earned at my job and then then they would use the car only for important stuff like all right we're going to plan our errands out we're going to not drive for no reason and we're going to use the car and it's very valuable for certain things and it's totally worth like a hundred dollars to to go on a camping trip so you'll do it but you wouldn't just you know drive two towns away to just to go for a drive because you know it's costing you a hundred dollars and you'd, you'd rather not lose that hundred so that's number one and then number two is learn the alternatives to cars which is biking uh, most people don't realize that biking is both easy and it's pretty much as fast as driving mm -hmm. if you're staying within a city sure. a metro area because the average speed of a car in a metro area is like 20 miles an hour or less yeah and bikes can often go that fast especially if you have an e-bike and they, they often have access to faster less congested routes that maybe have less, you know, distance to them. So bikes really get you around fast. They're really cheap. Obviously they're good for your health too. Uh, but most Americans don't have a bike. So the first thing you got to do is get like a all in one, super easy to use bike that yeah. just plain works, you know, with a yep. bike lock that clicks into it. So you can never lose it and it has to have a combination, not a key. So you don't lose the key and it has to have lights on the front and back so you can use it at night and it can be safe. Like, everything that a car has, right? Like right. when you go into a car, it already has lights. You already know you're not going to lose the key because it's like you take really good care of your car key. Mm -hmm. And so, and it, it's super safe and convenient. So if you have a bike that's as convenient as a car, then you can suddenly start using it. Yeah. And then you just try it, like try going to the closest grocery store with a backpack or whatever, and just getting like, you know, a couple avocados and a bag of coffee or something. And then once you have that little win, you're like, wait a minute, that wasn't so hard. Hmm. And then you start doing more and more and you bike with your kids to school and you do other things like this all within like a one or two mile radius. And that yeah. already cuts down your car use a lot. And then your body starts to get in better bicycling shape. And then it's all like a positive snowball from there. Yeah. And majority of our trips are within, you know, three miles. So yeah. it's what you're talking about there is very scalable and it's very reasonable to think that could overtake the vast majority of your trips and not that long of an amount of time. And like you said, removing that friction is such a big piece. To, we love and the bike community loves the little bells and whistles that are customizable. You take on and off all this stuff, but that's not 
what the average American is going to yeah. invest in as their primary mode of transportation. So I love that you brought that up as well. And I think that's some, some great advice for folks. I would love to touch on, so one of the cool things we like to do on this show is talk about kind of the unexpected, unassuming places in the U.S. that might be doing some things well. Um, you know, Boston, New York City, San Francisco, they get all the headlines as it pertains to great urbanism and things like that and pockets. But I'm really fascinated by this idea of walkable pockets that exist around the U.S. of places that don't get talked about, um, that you can get some walkability, some some ability to maybe own one less car than your family does right now or to go car-free at a much friendlier budget and price point than one of those large coastal cities would offer you. I know you've lived for a while in Longmont, Colorado, out in your boulder, outside Denver. Mm-hmm. You've told me the other day that there's quite a bit of walkability and bikeability in, in that town. I would love, would you mind just sharing a little bit about the town of Longmont and just maybe your pitch as to why you live there and why it might be a cool place for people to at least visit or consider spending some more time in. Cause I don't know if a lot of people have heard of it. So, yeah, well there's nothing particularly special about Longmont, but the thing to know about it that makes it walkable and bikeable as well as if it's uh, as it's next door city Boulder mm-hmm. is they're both small cities, like about a hundred thousand people each. And each one is five miles by five miles, mm-hmm. you know, kind of circular shaped. Yeah. So if you live in the middle of it, which I do, then it's only two and a half miles to any place in the uh, town, which is a short bike ride. Um, and it's still big enough at that size to get a lot of people, like a lot of services, you know, everything you need, movie theaters, good restaurants, all that other stuff, especially Boulder, um, because that's got like a great university and it's got high end restaurants, but that's also a really, really rich enclave, you know, like the houses start at a million dollars there. <laughs> yeah. So you really pay for the, the perfection of Boulder, but it also has amazing bike paths. So that's kind of like the, you know, the Saks Fifth Avenue of bikeable, walkable cities. I like that. Anybody who's rich enough should just move to Boulder and, and enjoy it or like, mm. you know, California equivalent of it. But for the rest of us, um, there's parts of every city in the United States that are quite walkable and bikeable. And the key that I like to do is just use the Google Maps test initially. Like you bring up Google Maps, put it on satellite view, works on Apple Maps too, of course. And then you just look for grocery stores because that's the thing you need most. And then scroll around and look for neighborhoods that also have housing and parks and school. If you have mm-hmm. kids that need to be in school, they're also within a couple miles of a grocery store, preferably one mile. And then you just, you know, search around and then identify these areas. And then you visit it in person if you're in the market to move to a house, um, apartment too. And then really you get the vibe and then you pick something that works. Mm-hmm. And there's in almost every city, like definitely every city I've ever studied, I've always been able to find these little clusters of like mixture of housing, schools, parks, probably some restaurants too, and grocery store that are all in a chunk. So it's like a mini Longmont or a mini Boulder. It might not be as glamorous, but it's still like a wonderful life and a great place to raise kids, especially if there's a park, yeah, a nature area, like a little ravine or a creek or whatever. Like, And you don't have to think of the whole city. Like you're sitting in front of a map of Phoenix right here, which is like 60 miles wide and 60 miles tall. And if you think of that as all one city, then you're going to be driving all the time because, you know, you could drive 36,000 miles a year and never leave Phoenix. <laughs> yeah. Or you could say, well, no, I live in, you know, central Tempe. So that's my city. And I don't go to Peoria or uh, Buckeye or whatever. You know, yeah. maybe I do for a special vacation, but sure. I don't just like <laughs> randomly sign my kid up for guitar lessons in Buckeye because then I'm going to have to do 120 mile 
round trip drive every time Junior needs a guitar lesson. Yeah. That's that's ridiculous. Yeah. Right? So just don't even open your mind to those areas. And then suddenly your mind opens to the exact same thing. Like, oh, wow, my next door neighbor is a guitar teacher. Well, I guess we'll take guitar lessons there. Mm-hmm. That's really how you get your driving down and your local life up is to just pretend these faraway things don't exist. Absolutely. Yeah. Vacation in Buckeye. That's I, mean, I don't <laughs> I have some friends that are going to laugh at that one because I, I don't know if many people do that. But hey, maybe there's there's probably some walkable pockets there. Even yeah. so. I know so, the Buckeye is like a new luxury, a bunch of new luxury, like poolside home developments getting yeah. built just because I have a friend who lives there. But I took a vacation to Apache Junction just beyond. Where Other side like, of the valley. You know, the Superstition Mountains yeah. and Canyon Lake. There's like a mini Grand Canyon over there and mm. camping and everything. And it was a 45 minute drive yeah. each way, uh, which was no problem because I was just doing it that one time. Sure. If that was my daily commute, Oof. it would suck. Yeah. But to do it once, I was like, this is an amazing vacation. I'm in a whole different place. Right. Like instead of being in the middle of this 5 million person city, I'm now in this completely silent mountaintop looking down at a crystal clear blue lake. And uh, so it like felt special because it was mm. rare. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that that too speaks to something that is, you know, you live in a simpler place sometimes and localize your life. It makes things more enthralling and special when you do go to different places and then you're able to see and really observe differences and you're able to appreciate little things more. You know, I know so many folks that I know that have lived out here in Phoenix for their whole life or a long time. They don't even see the mountains when they walk outside. And that is like my biggest fear is becoming desensitized to the things that exist in a place that don't exist elsewhere. And I actually think weirdly, if you kind of localize and simplify your life a little bit, those things become more enchanting we'll call it in, in different ways so I, I love that um, kind of sentiment as well I, I did want to ask you you know you're from Canada I've lived in some different spots there do you find anything that you see in Canadian cities or Canadian towns that you think US cities and towns could adopt or are they quite similar in a lot of ways I'm, I'm curious kind of the distinction there yeah from most of Canada that I've been to it's pretty similar they're both just like car based designs pretty bad you know like Ontario, I'm from Ontario, like near the giant city of Toronto. That's among the very worst. Like they just keep expanding the highways. Even to this day, they're like, well, the traffic's getting bad. We better add another lane. And like this road, this thing called Highway 401 that goes Mm. through Toronto, it's like way bigger than any highway in Phoenix Mm. and yet way more jammed. It's like induced demand. Yep. Uh, Like in the textbooks, it's like that brought to life. I think that highway gets up to I don't know, like 24 lanes wide at some points. It just goes forever and it's just so jammed. Yeah. About 20 hours a day, there's a traffic jam and there's only like, it's only between the hours of like midnight and 4 a.m. that it's not a traffic jam. <laughs> it's just such a disaster. Sure. So Canada is not solving the car problem. They do have the city of Montreal though, which is yeah. a big city, super European style compared to anything else I've seen in the US. And they bike a lot there. Like mm-hmm. they have really good bike lanes and the culture is just different where people just choose to ride their bikes, even though it has not a very good climate. Yep. They make the most of it. And there's like beautiful people all over the place. I don't know where they get all these beautiful people, but they're like, it makes it makes biking look more fun. Yeah. And the other thing is they wear normal clothes and they don't wear bike helmets, which is a European style yeah. where biking and they have like these stylish bikes. So it's like, you know, it's just makes, that's how biking should be everywhere, right. I think. And it's no. safer too, because there's a lot of cyclists and the cars are, is not as big roads for cars and therefore it becomes better for everybody. Totally. Yeah. And I, I think that there's a, there's a beauty in continuing to highlight these 
really amazing. And I love that you used European as a word to describe Montreal because these examples of places that are a lot closer to home that we can go to get international travel and exposure to these ideas that are not investing in a massive European vacation. Like if you are in a city here, there are Mexico city is an example, great transit, great bus system. Montreal is an example. If you want to get outside the U S and get good examples of urbanism and things that we can apply to our communities, to your point, there's some really strong ones that are not nearly as far and expensive to get to. So highly recommend checking those out. The, uh, the last question that we ask every guest, I'm very excited to hear your answer to this. Oh. Um, so this show is called good traffic. A lot of what we're trying to do is look at this thing that's unanimously agreed upon as terrible. And we all, you know, hate sitting in traffic. And therefore a lot of us have come to really despise our commutes on a daily basis, but a lot of places in the world and a lot of cities, even in the U S amongst certain populations, the commute is one of the best parts of the day. It's this beautiful dynamic thing that doesn't have to be just getting point A to point B, but it's actually this beautiful process that we get to undergo. So what do you mean if you're not in a car? Yes. Oh, okay. So, well, yeah, I mean, I guess for some people, but yes, largely. So I, I think with that in mind, I'd love to just know out of all the places you've lived, what's been your favorite commute that you've ever had? Um, I think it's right now because so I have a house in the Southwest corner of downtown Longmont. And then I also happen to have a commercial building that's right on the main street. We have just one street that's literally called main street. Hmm. So we have a, with some friends, I co-own a co-working space on the main street it's about a mile and a half from my house, mile 1.3 maybe. So I just walk there, but it's a really beautiful walk because it has a variety of like steep hills and neighborhoods and, you know, parks. I cut through some parks and I have all these different ways that I walk to the headquarters. And when I'm in a rush, a bike, uh, but when I have the time, it takes like close to 30 minutes to walk there. Mm. And it's just super nice and feels luxurious and sauntering. You know, and I'll have my backpack that has like the laptop and maybe a couple of tools in it because I'm usually working on the building. And that just feels great to walk, walk half an hour to get to work Yeah, through a nice, quiet neighborhood. And then you work all day, which is typically a physical job for me. Okay. And then, then you're already, I'm already kind of tired, but then I have to walk home because I have no other choice. And that just feels really good to just push yourself a little bit, walk home, come down the hill to my house, and then... You know, I'm usually ravenous for a huge dinner at that point and everything tastes better after you've had oh, a yeah. big physical day. So anytime you can have a long walking commute, I think that's the absolute gold standard of a commute is walking. And then biking is a close second and then everything else is down from there. Couldn't agree more. That's beautiful. Well, Pete, Mr. Money Mustache, thank you so much for coming on the show today and uh, for being in good traffic with us. It's my pleasure. I can't wait to see how this uh, show turns out as, as it keeps growing. We'll keep working on it.